You know, we had this thing called the Billboard 100s, you know, when you want to know what song, you know, is moving in your times, you check the billboards. If you want to know what song is, like, making the most sales, you would check the billboards, no matter what the category is. But in heaven, there is a billboard in which when you glorify God, it is a certified hit. Oh, y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. When you remind God that he is a covenant-keeping God, it is a certified hit. When you remind God that he is a deliverer, it is a certified hit. It's well beyond platinum. I mean, Thriller may be the greatest selling album on earth, but the greatest selling album in heaven, the greatest selling album of all times is every song that is glorifying God. Amen? Amen? Oh, man. It's just something about that song, Covenant Keeping God, that every time you hear it, it radically changes your, your circumstances. It speaks to where you are. It speaks to who he is, despite what you're going through. Hallelujah. So I'm going to try to preach a sermon this morning. And the emphasis on the word is try. Um, but I've, I, I just thank God because of who he is. And um, he's such a good, good guy. And uh, I got one of my friends, my poetry buddy. I'm talking about a sister who is powerful when she does poetry. She happened to be with us here this morning. So y'all give a round of applause. It's for poetess Salida. She's, <laughs> she is an awesome friend. Major with testimonies. Amen. So um, without further ado, let's turn to John chapter 14, verse 29, and we're going to read from John chapter, to, from John 14, verse 29 to uh, 15, verse 7. And as you know, we are rounding up our journey in the I am sayings of Jesus in the book of John. And if you have been following us, we know that whenever Jesus says that I am, in every one of those I am statements, he is connecting himself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai with the intentions of delivering Israel from bondage, but not only that, but also to bring them into their promised land. Deliverance, in a sense, would be incomplete if you've been being delivered from something and not being delivered to something. So whenever he says that I am, he is connecting himself with this testimony, with this understanding that he is the great God, the great deliverer. So whenever you hear the phrase, I am, it's in connection with deliverance. I remember watching this movie, Coming to America. And this is one of my favorite lines in the entire movie is when Akeem, who is played by Eddie Murphy, he goes, he's working at McDonald's. This is a guy who was a prince, 
um, of Zamunda, another fictitious African country that I love <laughs> next to Wakanda. <laughs> and um, he's, in, he's, you know, he's now working at McDonald's because he has his intentions of wooing this woman that he has seen at this, um, at this, basically at this place where they were getting donations for money. He liked her. He said, I got to work wherever she's at. I got to work at that job because my intentions is making her my wife. So he works at he works at this McDonald's. He's you know he's going through these rooms. He's cleaning out trash, and he is it McDonald's. My bad. (laughs) They have the Big Mac. We have the Big Mac. And uh, so he's emptying the trash, and he goes into her office, and he's you know sparking this conversation with her. And of course, the conversation is really not getting any getting anywhere. But he says this line that I really love, and he says. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. <laughs> and likewise, when you think of the I am, think of the one who is delivering you. When you think of the great deliverer, think of the I am. Amen? And so Jesus is identifying himself as the great I am. Simply put, the I am statements is the revelation of Jesus or Yeshua as Yahweh being demonstrated in various aspects of Israel's history, culture, and redemption. He is the fulfillment of Israel and Israel's redemption. And with this understanding, let us begin our readings. John chapter 14, verse 29 says, Now I have told you before it happens... So that when it happens, am I with the right place? I'll read from the screen just to be on the same page. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing with me, nothing in me. Keep that phrase in your mind. He has nothing in me. The next, next passage. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so do I. Arise, let us go from here. Next verse. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. Next verse. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, you will ask what you desire, you will ask that what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Amen. Amen. Commentators disagree on the location of where this conversation took place. There's typically one or two options. This, could, this conversation could have took place with, uh, with Jesus, with his disciples on the way to Bethany when they're preparing or getting ready for what we know as the Passover. 
Or the other option is that this conversation could have took place after the Passover, when the Passover um, meal has been finished, and now Jesus is heading, and his disciples are heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place of deep pressing. And this discussion could have been the discussion that took place. It's either one of those two options. In my personal opinion, I like option number two. And the reason why I like option number two is that there's two things that occurred at the Lord's Supper. Option number two, again, is when they're leaving the Lord's Supper and they're heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is the reason why I like option number two. One is that at the Lord's Supper, when he gives his disciples the, uh, the, the wine or the communion cup, and he says to them, after, as he's passing the wine, as they're basically partaking of this wine, he says to them that as of right now, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And this is in Luke chapter 28, verse 18, so that the emphasis of the vine has already been established. The second aspect is that Judas Iscariot is exposed as the one who would betray the Messiah he, Judas, was with the disciples throughout the ministry of Jesus. He saw the miracles, participated in all the events, and yet he did not remain with Jesus. You following me? So, I'm going to go into that a little bit, I'm going to go into that deeper a little bit later, but just wanted to kind of create the context from how this conversation may have taken place. So it is quite possible that on the way to Gethsemane, they were passing through vineyards, and vineyards are plentiful in the land of Israel. Grapevines are, extremely, uh, are an extremely popular national crop. Um, they are a very rich produce in Israel. You will find vineyards everywhere in Israel. It is estimated that Israel can produce, in their best times of harvest, 132 million pounds of grapes. That tiny country can produce 132 million pounds of grapes. So even in their worst conditions, grapes is a reliable product for Israel in regards to if they ever fall on hard economic times. Amen? So this in itself would allow the Messiah the opportunity of providing the disciples with insight concerning his nature his nature as the one who sustains our faith in our salvation. In John chapter 15, verse 1, Yeshua, Jesus, begins by saying, I am the true vine. The question that some of you may have, me included, that have no experience with dealing with plants, trees, uh, agriculture, we don't like to go into the woods because most of us are black, um, <laughs> some of us will be asking, what is a vine? A vine is a stem or a part of the plant that produces saps or nutrients for the productivity or the productiveness of the branches that are connected to the stem. In other words, strength and life comes to the branches by the way of the vine and the branches must abide in the vine to live and bear fruit. Again, a vine is the stem or the plant that is, or part of the plant that produces sap or nutrients for the productivity 
of the branches. Therefore, without the vine, there is no nutrients that flow to the branches. A vineyard or a group of vines was a testimony of the owner's inheritance and prosperity from God. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. Again, we're on the topic that Jesus is the true vine. It says, then it shall come about when the Lord, okay, now this is the commandment, okay. It shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, next verse, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full. First Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 3. First Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 3. Shouts out to Projection Team. Y'all give them a round of applause. They are doing a fabulous job. Yeah. Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house and for, it, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. Verse three, but Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh or the Lord forbid that I shall give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. Proverbs 30, 31 Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. Ezekiel 28, verse 26, they shall live securely. Ezekiel 28, verse 26. It starts with an E, there you go. <laughs> And they will dwell safely there, build houses, and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord their God. So a vineyard was a testimony of the owner's inheritance and prosperity from God. In the Old Testament, Israel was viewed as a vine. Let us look at some scriptures that support this notion. Psalms 80, verse 8. Psalms 80, verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and you have planted it. Verse 14 of that same, of that same chapter. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. Yet I have planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plants of an alien vine? Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars 
according to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Another text would say that Israel is the luxuriant vine. Amen? So it is God's ultimate desire that Israel would be the example of God's sustenance and life to all the nations of the world. However, in the same passages that we just read, which demonstrate that Israel is God's vine, also highlights the moral failure of Israel as the people of God, because Israel veered away from being a nation of hope that was connected to Yahweh, their God. Why? because Israel wanted to be like the nations around them. God chose Israel, God set Israel apart, but because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, Israel took their eyes off of Yahweh, off of the promises of Yahweh, off of the greatness of Yahweh, and they looked to the superficial things of the world. Most of the time when Israel's devotion began to decline, it was typically during the good times. In other words, God gives you a lot of money, you come into a lot of great wealth, you know, you, you know, you, God, there's an expectation that you will worship God because of all these great things that are happening, but instead of worshiping God, instead of glorifying God, you begin to focus on the things that God has given you except for, instead of the God, instead of God himself. Amen? So they forgot what it meant to be a slave in Egypt when God promoted them to the promised land. So rather than find ways in which they can exalt his name, they wanted to experience the godless delights of Canaan. They chased after false gods. Their worship began to decline. In Egypt, they didn't have any money. They had extremely low-paying jobs. Now they got this new real estate deal that has happened to be finalized. They got this land, and now they're worshiping the things of this land instead of the God who had delivered them into the land. God has increased their wealth, but their giving statements didn't reflect that because, again, their worship was not to God, it was to the things that God has given them. God has given them a, God has given them a new status of employment. But now their devotion is to, to their employment and their devotion is no longer to God. Sounds familiar? So Yeshua, the Messiah, steps in as the fulfillment of God's desire and promise of restoration to Israel. And by extension of Israel to the nations, by identifying himself as the true vine in contrast to Israel's moral failure as the vine of God. So where Israel has failed, Jesus has succeeded. Where Israel has failed to adhere to the call of God, Jesus succeeded by fulfilling the call of God. If there's ever a such thing as a replacement theology, it is that Jesus himself steps into where Israel should have been and does what Israel should have done and fulfills it on behalf of Israel. So where Israel gets credit is because of what Jesus has done. Amen? Likewise, where you get credit is what Jesus has done through you, not what you have done in and of yourself. Amen. Because God is not obligated to an ethnic nation, but to a faithful nation or a nation of faith, a nation that will identify itself with God. So if you are identifying yourself with the Messiah, 
then you are identifying yourself as Israel, God's covenant people, because the Messiah is redefined as the true Israel. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, do not think that you can say of yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. So Yeshua is the true vine. And in the same verse in John 15, verse 1, he calls the father his vine dresser or the vine dresser. Some translations may say farmer. Some translations may say gardener. It's all stemming from the Greek word Georgos, which is best understood as a husbandman or a gardener. The husbandman is in charge of the entire land and every aspect of the land, not just the produce. The husbandman is responsible for making sure that the environment is that it's in the best conditions for to support the vineyard. The idea here is that the husbandman is responsible for everything that impacts the welfare of the vine. The husbandman ex- exercises deep care for the vine. He ensures that the vine is able to produce. This is a beautiful picture of the relationship between the father and the son. John chapter 5 verse 20 mentions that the father loves the son. The son is the object of the father's affection. And we being connected to the son as the body of of Christ, as the body of the Messiah, experience that love, that affection because we are united to the son. We are united to the true vine. We are united to true Israel and therefore beneficiaries of the father's care of the son. Amen? Amen. Case in point, God doesn't love you based on your earnings, based on your title, based on your education or your reputation. He doesn't love you based on your credentials or your potential. He loves you because he loves the son and you are in the son. He loves the son unconditionally. Therefore, because you are in the son, he loves you unconditionally. That's such an awesome place to be. Verse 2 of John chapter 15 states, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. To ensure that the overall health and the integrity of the vine is intact, the husbandman, through the act of pruning, will remove the branches of the vine that are not receiving life from the vine. The existence of these branches are inconsistent with the purpose, the vision, and the mission of the vine. Likewise, the father is removing unregenerate persons from Israel, those who may call themselves Israel, but do not have a relationship with the Messiah. Those ones who can speak Christianese, but who appear, to, who appear to have a relationship with Christ, but only seek to exploit him for personal gains, such as Judas Iscariot. This is not condemnation, this is preparation. Why? Because Judas was revealed to be the one who would betray Yeshua. Throughout the gospel narratives, we're able to see that Judas was going to be a problem. However, the disciples who were living out this event were unaware and caught off guard. This has to be an emotionally traumatic experience 
on, the, on some level because Judas was present throughout the ministry of the Messiah. He saw the miracles take place. He ate with the Messiah. He shared the joys and the pains of the ministry life. He saw people delivered and professed that Yeshua is the Messiah. Judas was among the 12 who were sent out, who preached the gospel, who demonstrated his authority over, uh, of God over the demons. Judas was among the disciples who at the time when Jesus' ministry went from being a mega ministry to a storefront church, and Jesus had asked the disciples, hey, uh, are you guys going to leave me too? What was Jesus' response? I chose you the 12, yet one of you are a devil. Judas was present there. So it would seem on the outset that the, the 12 that he started with would be the 12 that he would finish with. That didn't happen. Judas ended up being what you would call a backstabber. You know, the ones that smile in your face, all the while they're trying to take your place. Backstabber. <laughs> Not everyone who claims to be a Christian or has their ministry of in Christianity is considered legit. That's truth. How could this disciple... That, that handle such news that, how could the disciples handle such news that one of their own has betrayed them? This is one of the heartbreaking aspects of the Christian walk. However, we must recognize that not everyone that is a part of our fellowship belongs to him. First John two nineteen. you can take this in your notes, you don't have to turn there, but it says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they, had they been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have went out that it might become plain that they are all, that they all are not of us. But for those who do belong to Jesus, John 15 verse uh, 2 continues to say that in every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. See, the reason why the disciples stayed and Judas left is because though Judas was part of the ministry, part of the teaching, part of the preaching, Judas was not part of the Messiah. The word bear is in the present, the part, the present participle active um, tense in the Greek language, which represents an action that is currently taking place and which takes place repeatedly. In other words... The actual, the actual reading of this passage could say that every branch that is producing fruit, he, the father, is pruning so that we, the branches, might produce more fruit. Pruning is not just removing the branches that are purposeless from the vineyard, but it's also removing unwanted parts from the fruitful branches. Think about it. You work in this job. Let's just say you're in sales. 2017, you made, let's just say in sales, you made $1 million dollars. Your boss comes up to you and says, oh, good job. We made $1 million in profit in 2017. Of course, you pat yourself on the back. You know, you're excited. You're happy. Then your boss hits you with a hammer. In 2018, I need you to make $2 million in sale. What do you do? You reassess and you reevaluate where you are. You say, okay, what worked in 2017 
that I can continue using in 2018 to ensure that I can go from a million dollars in sales to two million dollars in sales. At the same time, you are also evaluating what aspects failed in 2017 that will be of no use in 2018 to ensure that you produce more revenue in 2018 compared to 2017. So likewise, the Father, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, is now removing the aspects of you that would be a hindrance in 2018 that, was, uh, that, was, that is no good in 2017. In other words, you are being perfected daily because you are having a relationship with the Father through the Son who is the vine dresser. Amen? So he's removing those dead parts of you, that dead weight, those bad relationships that would hinder your walk with God, those things, those habits that you were doing that would hinder your walk with God. He's removing that. And he's doing it because of that continual relationship that you have with him. He's improving you. He's perfecting you. His goal, is, as Paul was stated in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is that you are being predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So whatever Jesus looks like, that's what God wants you to look like. Amen? Amen. Amen. So every day you're being perfected. Every day you are resembling the risen Christ. His life is now your life. His interactions with the Father is now your interactions with the Father. His benefit is now your benefit. Amen? Amen. So the question is, what fruit is being produced when you are connected to the Messiah, the true vine? Do you have fruit? Is your life producing fruit? The word fruit is a, is a metaphor for a godly image, character, or nature that results from one being connected with the Son of God. It is the produce of the life of God within you. If you, want to be, if you want me to put it in business terms, the fruit is the return on the investment, the profit because the vine has invested in the branches. The fruit is the outcome. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 says, produce, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, Produce a life that is a demonstration of the reality that you have a changed mind, that you have a changed walk with God. Amen? That you're no longer looking like the world or acting like the world. You produce fruit that is resembling the kingdom of God. The beauty of the vineyard is not just the vine in and of itself. It is the grapes that is produced. The existence of the vine is pointless if the grapes are never manifested. Nobody goes up to a tree of a fruitless, uh, uh, you know, nobody goes up to a tree that has fruitless branches and marvels at the beautiness of the tree. You've seen, you've seen trees around wintertime. They have no leaves. You don't go up and say, oh, wow, that's a beautiful tree. It's almost something that you don't like seeing. It's almost despicable to a certain degree because it seems like there's no life there. But in the springtime, there is an expectation that when you go back to that same tree, there's leaves that are there. There's an expectation that when you go back to that same tree, that there's, there's, a, there's fruits that are on the branches. Likewise, the father does not marvel at the beautiness of the sun if there's no fruit to be marveled at. The Father does not celebrate the Son just because the Son is the Son. Christ still has his glory. 
if overcoming sin and death was just a singular result with him seated on the throne alone, but his glory is magnified because it's revealed in us. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he didn't just rise alone. It's the fact that we have resurrected with him. Christ is victorious and glorious because, and he, and we are victorious and glorious because we are with him. We flourish because we are with him. Why? Because he flourished. And so the glory that he is now receiving coming into the kingdom of his father is also that same glory that we're able to share in because we are with him. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two, verse Four to six, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised, up, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you wanted me to sum up the gospel, it's this phrase, uh, is this understanding of the in and the with. If you're in Christ, you're with Christ. If you're truly with Christ, you must be established in Christ. If you're in Christ and you're not with Christ, there's a problem. If you're with Christ but not in Christ, you're a person that's going to betray Christ eventually. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says that the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And verse 17 says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. He is the true vine. He has accomplished what Israel failed to accomplish. And we see his glory as the glory of Israel as well as the light to the nations. However, none of this will matter to you or benefit you if you are not with him. Are you with him? This is the most important question that you can ever ask anyone. This is the most important question that you must ask yourself. Are you with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Being with him, is that seen in your life? Do you reflect the life of God? Are you connected with him? In your families, do you reflect the life of God? Is your family as a whole reflecting the life of God? That happens when your family is with him and in him. In your businesses, do you reflect the life of God? I'm not talking about having a successful business or a failing business. I'm talking about a business that if anybody looked at from the outside, were able to see that there's something about this business that is absolutely different from all the other businesses that exist on this planet. Look at Chick-fil-A. Their value is reflecting the life of God. Chick-fil-A closes on Saturday, on Sunday. They do not operate on Sunday. Every other restaurant operates Monday through Sunday. However, Chick-fil-A manifests great quarterly earnings because they have a desire to be in and with Christ. They stand with Christ in all their dealings. They honor God. And therefore, they manifest the life of God and it's clearly seen in how 
Chick-fil-A can go through some tough times and still come out on top. So in your business dealings, do you reflect the life of God? In your friendships, your relationships, do you reflect the life of God? Is it evident through the relationships that you keep when your friends are hanging with you? Do they know that they can come to you because you reflect the life of God? Do they trust what you say because you reflect the life of God? If you don't, there's a problem. So to sum it up, our desires, our goal as a people of God is to manifest and reflect the life of God because Jesus is the true vine. And if we're in him, we're going to be fruitful branches. Amen? Amen. Eyes closed. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so very much.